Daniel chapter 9, looking at verses 20 through 27. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 747. As you're turning there, I'm going to forewarn you that today we are looking at one of the most challenging passages in all the book of Daniel. But it's also one of the most profitable for those willing to engage with it. So we're going to open this morning in a word of prayer. We're going to ask the Lord to help us gain understanding. And then we will conduct our study together. So let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather as a church family. Thank you for each individual who is here. Lord, I pray your every blessing on each one of them. Would you fill them with your grace? Would you open their minds and mine that we might understand the treasures of your word? Help us to understand today's text in particular. Uh, Help us to listen as, as Gabriel explains to Daniel how history is going to unfold and help us to understand him and embrace the truths conveyed. And then, Lord, help us to see how to apply these truths to our own lives so that we can walk away from here closer to you and more like your Son as a result of being here today. Our church is in your hands, Lord. We pray that you will be glorified in it. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week I offered a brief history of the Jewish people. I'm going to do so again now just to set the context for today's passage. So you'll recall that millennia ago, the the Jewish people or the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And their taskmaster was the Egyptian pharaoh. And he was a cruel taskmaster. He worked them all day and all night. He did not give them proper food or hydration. He was literally working the Israelites to death. And in their misery, they cried out to the God of heaven, something they hadn't done in a very long time. But they cried out to the God of heaven, begging him for mercy, begging him to relieve them from their agony. And the scriptures say that God heard that prayer and God answered it. And God answered their prayer in dramatic fashion. He raised up a prophet called Moses, and he used Moses to lead the Jewish people out of slavery and then take them into the promised land, the land of Israel. One of the first stops on the journey was at a mountain called Mount Sinai. There at the top of Mount Sinai, God gave his Ten Commandments to the Israelites. Then he also gave a host of other statutes and ordinances. And what God was doing there was taking this group of slaves and shaping them into a well-ordered nation. And then God promised that if they kept his law, they would be blessed beyond measure. In fact, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. But then he warned them that if they were unfaithful to his laws, that great calamities would befall them. And the Israelites listened to all of this from God, and they said, Yes, God, we want this. We want you to be our God. We want to be your people. And so on that day, a covenant was established between God and the Israelites. He became their God. They became his people. A special relationship was formed between the two. But of course, just as soon as they had entered that covenant, they were already being 
unfaithful to it. God was not. He was keeping his word. But the Jewish people, they were being unfaithful. In fact, even as God was delivering the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were down below the base of Mount Sinai, collecting their jewelry, melting it down, and making an idol to worship. Generation after generation, things just grew worse as the Israelites rejected more and more of God's law, showing their contempt for their covenant with God. And so, with each passing generation, God would raise up prophets who would speak to the people. He would remind the Israelites of their covenant obligations before God. And the prophets would warn the Israelites of the calamities which would befall if they continue down the path of unfaithfulness. But they ignored the words of the prophets and they persecuted the prophets themselves. And so finally, the calamities began to mount. All of the nations surrounding Israel began to harass them more and more. And then finally, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire rolled its war machine right over Israel's northern kingdom, destroying that uh, portion and taking its ten tribes into captivity. Now there was nothing left of Israel but a little rump kingdom called Judah and two of the twelve original tribes. But they didn't learn from their northern brothers and sisters. They continued down the path of disobedience. And so then God raised up the Babylonian Empire and they rolled through Judah, destroying the holy city, Jerusalem, ransacking the most holy place, the temple, and carrying the best and brightest of Judah off into captivity. Israel was experiencing all of the disasters that had been promised to them if they rejected their covenant with God. Well, Daniel the prophet was carried away in the Babylonian captivity. He was just a teenager at the time. But now, as we come to Daniel chapter 9, we find the prophet Daniel is in his 80s. So, Nearly his entire life has been spent in captivity in Babylon. But Daniel has been reading the scriptures, and he has come to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 11 and 12, and he, he reads there that this Babylonian captivity is only going to last for 70 years. Daniel starts doing the math, and he says, Okay, I was a teenager when I was taken. Now I'm in my 80s. It's been about 70 years. He knows the captivity is about to come to an end. He and all of the other Israelites are going to be permitted to return to their holy land. Daniel is very excited about this. But he's also a little bit nervous because he doesn't want the Israelites all to go back to the promised land and for things to go just like they had been before. He wants to make sure that when they return, they're they're returning on the right foot. And so Daniel drops to his knees and he begins praying to God. That's the first half of Daniel chapter 9. He just starts praying to God, representing all Israelites as he does so. And he's begging God to forgive them for their unfaithfulness, forgive them for all of their sins. He's pleading with God to restore them to their former glory. You can hear just the the passionate nature of Daniel's prayer in verses 18 and 19. Listen as I read those words. Daniel prays, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city, that's Jerusalem, and your people, the Israelites, are called by your name. What a heartfelt plea as he finds his people on the cusp of returning to the promised land. And friends, this is exactly what we should do when our sins have taken us far from God. Best thing you can do is just drop everything, get on your knees, and with a humble, sincere prayer, just go to God. Ask Him for forgiveness. Ask for healing. Ask that He would restore you to a proper relationship with Himself. That is the answer, a prayer of repentance and faith. That's what Daniel does on behalf of his nation. And now we move into today's text, which once more is Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. And in today's text, we find the Lord's answer to Daniel's pleas. And in the first verses of our text, we find that God doesn't waste even one second in responding to Daniel's prayer. Even as Daniel is in the act of praying, God is sending a messenger with his answer. Because that's the kind of God he is, a God who hears his people's prayers and who responds. Let's uh, read verses 20 through 23. Daniel writes, While I was still speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, again, that's Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, quote, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So before Daniel had even concluded his prayer of repentance, God had already dispatched an angel called Gabriel to convey to Daniel how God intended to answer the prayer. Now, Gabriel is called a man in today's text. That's because the angel appeared to Daniel in the form of a man. But as we look at the rest of Scripture, this seems to be the angel Gabriel's special job. He is God's ambassador. And whenever there's an important message to convey, it's Gabriel who is dispatched. And so Gabriel appeared to Daniel back in chapter 8 of this book, helped Daniel understand the interpretation of the vision of the ram and the goat. Then in the New Testament Scriptures, Gabriel appears to Zechariah, letting him know that he and his wife would be bearing John the Baptist. And of course, Gabriel is also the one who appeared to the Virgin Mary to tell her that she would bear the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. So Gabriel is something of a special messenger of God. And then you'll also notice in this text that he comes in swift flight 
to Gabriel. Now, this speaks of the urgency of his mission. God is listening to Daniel's prayers, and God does not want to delay even a second before an answer gets to Daniel. So he sends Gabriel, and he says, go and go quickly. So in swift flight, the angel makes his way to the prophet. In verse 23, the angel Gabriel explains the reason why he has come. He says it's because Daniel was greatly loved. That is, loved by God. See, my friends, God has a special love for his people. And in his love, God listens to his people when they pray. And God uses their prayers to accomplish his purposes in the world. And so God tells us that he wants us to pray to him. Cast your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you, the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that if his beloved will come to him in prayer, he will hear and answer. And so in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, our Lord says, Call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And in Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And in James 5, 16, we're told that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So friends, God loves his people. And because he loves his people, he listens to them when they pray. And God answers the prayers of his people, the prayers offered to him in humility and in sincerity of heart and in genuine faith and aligned with his motives, uh, with right motives and in line with his goals. God answers those prayers. As we're about to see, sometimes the answer is not exactly what we prayed for, but in the end, it turns out to be way better. And so, my friends, in light of all of this, let us all redouble our efforts in prayer. Believing that God loves us, that He is our Father, we're His children. Believing that He is all-knowing so that we can pray to Him, and wherever we are, at whatever time, whatever place, He hears us, and He knows our needs. And in His grace, we must believe that He will choose to use our prayers to do good for us, to promote his own glory, to accomplish his purposes in the world. Well, this takes us to verses 24 through 27. And here we learn precisely how God was going to answer Daniel's prayer to restore Israel. And what we find in these verses is that God's plan for Israel was far greater than anything Daniel had been praying for. So Daniel is going to God and saying, God, please forgive our sins. Please return us to our holy land. Give us our pre-exilic glory back. God sends the angel Gabriel and he says, Daniel, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to answer that prayer, but I am going to take your request and I am going to give you so much more than you ever even imagined. God was going to transform Israel into a state of everlasting, sinless glory. That was God's way of answering Daniel's prayer. Because that's the kind of a God that he is. 
Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, He is the kind of a God who does exceeding abundantly more than all that we ask or think. So we, as His children, go to God. We offer our prayers and our pleads, and God answers them, but He answers them exceeding abundantly above what we had asked for. Daniel wanted Israel's former glory back. God was going to give Israel a new degree of glory, sinless glory. Let's look at this together now. We'll begin in verse 24. We see that God's plan for Israel was a six-part plan. He says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, that's the Israelites, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem. Now here are the six parts. Part one, to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. So Daniel was praying that God would forgive them for their transgressions, but God now reveals his plan goes one step further. He was going to end the reign of sin in Israel altogether. Bring it to an end. And then the second part of his plan, to put an end to sin. To reach the point where sin in Israel was not just rare, but it was unthinkable. No longer would they be a people guilty of breaking God's law. Third part of his plan, it was to atone for their iniquity. So God was going to do a work in this nation such that they would no longer be capable of future sinning. And then regarding all the sins of the past... God was going to atone for those. That means to cover over, to wipe away. It's going to take away the record of all former sins. And then the next part of his plan, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So the nation just wouldn't be refraining from sinful acts, but they would also be a nation of positive good works. They would truly become what they were designed to be, a nation that blesses all other nations through good. And I want you to notice, he says they would be a nation of everlasting righteousness, which is a promise that there would always be a nation of Israel. He was going to do a work in this nation, internally transform them so they could no longer sin, do a work to atone for all past sins, make them doers of good works, and it would be everlasting. Israel would always, as long as there was a planet Earth, there would be a nation of Israel. That is the promise. And then the next part of the promise is, is to seal the vision and the prophet. That means to bring all of the promises of God to their fulfillment in Israel. Not one thing that God had promised them would fail to come to pass. And then finally, his plan was to anoint a most holy place. Possibly a reference to the nation of Israel itself. God's plan was to consecrate this nation as a special nation, a special people forever and ever. Or it could be a specific reference to the city of Jerusalem, called the Holy City, or to the future temple in Jerusalem prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. But regardless of the specific reference, we see the promise here God would consecrate for himself an everlasting holy place, that it would center on this nation. 
So the point in all of this, friends, is that God took Daniel's feeble prayer requests and he, he explained that he was planning to answer those requests in a manner far above what Daniel had even imagined was possible. That's what God was going to do, and that's what God does for all of his people. So friends, go ahead, take those righteous requests to God in prayer, pour your heart out to God, tell him the desires of your heart, those godly, righteous desires. Tell him what you would like him to do in his church and in your family and in your life, in this world. Tell him all about it and then sit back and watch as God does a work using your prayers as one of the means by which he accomplishes it. And watch him do a work that is beyond anything you could have imagined. That's what God does. That's how God gets the glory to turn a feeble prayer into something magnificent. Well, there's more to see here in the text. We've seen God's sixfold plan for transforming his chosen nation, Israel, into a state of everlasting, sinless glory. But we also need to notice, verse 24, that it was not going to happen all instantaneously. Rather, God was going to accomplish this great end by means of a process. First words in verse 24 say, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, right? So, so none of this is going to happen immediately. It will be the end result of a process that runs 70 weeks. And in this context, a week literally refers to a period of seven years, not seven days. So God says, I'm going to do all of this for my nation, Israel, but I'm going to do it over a over a series of years, it will be 70 segments of seven years each, or 490 years in total. Now, we should not be surprised that God would frame his plans for Israel in terms of sevens, because this happens all the time in Scripture. Seven is symbolic of perfection or completion in Scripture. So, for example, God creates the world over the course of a seven-day work week. It represents that God's creation is a perfect, a complete creation. And in Psalm 12, verse 6, we're told that the words of God are like silver, purified seven times. The words of God are perfect. They're complete. Israel's exile in Babylon was to last 70 years, a number divisible by seven. It was a perfect judgment for their covenant unfaithfulness. And this is just, just the tip of the iceberg. The number seven occurs with great frequency in the scriptures to be taken literally, but also to be understood as a number representing perfection. And so here in Daniel chapter nine, the transformation of Israel would be the end result of a divinely ordered process that would involve 70 periods of seven years each. A perfect amount of time for the perfect purification of the nation. And verses 25 through 27 detail exactly how those 70 weeks would unfold. Let's begin in verse 25, reading through the verse. It says, Know therefore 
and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven periods of seven years. And then for 62 weeks, 62 periods of seven years, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, verse 25 then is dealing with the first 69 of those 70 prophesied weeks. You see that there. The first 483 of the 490 years that God would work in Israel. While our ESV Bibles do obscure it just a little bit, what the angel Gabriel is doing here is giving us the exact beginning point for the 69 weeks and then the terminal point of the 69 weeks. And here's what Gabriel tells us. He says, week one of God's plan would commence with an order to rebuild Jerusalem. He says, week 69 would terminate with the public revealing of the anointed one. That's the Messiah, Jesus. So that's the first 69 weeks. Now, friends, given our place in history, we can look back and actually identify the dates and the events. These were future to Daniel, but these events are past to us. We can look back and see that the order to rebuild Jerusalem was issued by a man called Artaxerxes I in the year 445 B.C. That is the commencement of week one of the prophecy. Now, if we take that number, and now we count forward 483 years to get us through the 69 weeks, what is the terminal year? Well, using the ancient time or ancient uh, method of reckoning time, the final year of, of week 69 is A.D. 33. A.D. 33. So from 445 B.C. to A.D. 33. That would take the nation of Israel from Daniel's lifetime all the way through the time between the Old and New Testaments, about 400 years, into the New Testament era, into the life of Jesus, and to an event in Jesus' life that happened in A.D. 33 called the Triumphal Entry. It's also called Palm Sunday. The terminal point, the public revealing of the Anointed One, would happen in A.D. 33 during the Triumphal Entry of Jesus. Now, friends, the significance of that historical event is impossible to overestimate. If you're not familiar with, with what that event refers to, triumphal entry of Jesus happens at the very end of his public ministry. You see, for, for millennia, really, the Israelites had been longing for a Messiah to come, this long-promised Savior who would establish the kingdom of God and do, do all of these uh, wonderful things for Israel. They'd been longing for his arrival for so long. Then finally Jesus came into the world, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus commenced his public ministry. And as the Israelites began to look at Jesus and his ministry, they began to wonder in their minds, is he the Messiah? Like, he is fulfilling prophecies about the Messiah. He is teaching like Messiah would teach. He's performing signs and wonders like the Messiah should perform. 
His life is absolutely free of sin, just like the Messiah's life should be. They were wondering, is Jesus the Messiah? So much speculation. Well, friends, at the triumphal entry, Jesus publicly declared himself to be the Messiah. That's what it was all about. He mounted the back of a donkey, which in those days was something royalty would do. He got on the back of a donkey and he rode slowly into the city of Jerusalem with his whole entourage behind him. And the people knew what Jesus was doing, declaring himself Israel's king, their sovereign, their anointed one, Messiah. Use any title you like here. They were so excited. They were shouting hallelujah. They were running out, ripping down palm branches, laying them out on the road before Jesus. That was their version of rolling out the red carpet. Those who didn't have palm branches were taking off their outer cloaks, throwing those on the road, declaring Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus himself seems to indicate that that event was the fulfillment of of week 69 in the Daniel 9 prophecy. I refer you to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. We'll not turn there, but I encourage you to search that scripture out for yourself. And so this is incredible, my friends. What we see here is that for the first 69 weeks, or weeks of years... In the prophecy, God would be laying the foundation for Israel's future glory. During those 69 weeks of years, God would restore the Israelites to their holy land. He would providentially permit them to rebuild their city, their temple, put everything back into place. And God was then going to preserve his people through all of the upheavals of world history. Because if you know anything about those 400 years between Old Testament and New, you know that was a tumultuous time for the world. Empires rose and fell, like the Babylonian Empire, and like the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire, and then the rise of the Roman Empire. Very challenging time in history. But God was going to preserve his tiny little nation of Israel right in the midst of all of it through the whole time period. He was going to lead them right up to the birth and ministry of their Messiah, God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Looking back on history from our vantage point, we can see that God fulfilled his words exactly exactly as he prophesied that he would here in Daniel chapter 9. Right down to the year, right down to the event, he declared it centuries earlier, this is what I will do, Daniel. I'm going to answer your request. I'm going to set Israel up for future glory. First 69 weeks of my plan is to prepare for its glory, lay a foundation for it, bring Messiah into the world. And he did it exactly to the year, how he said he would. My friends, the God that we worship is a God who keeps his word. But now shifting gears, as we move beyond verse 25, we find something interesting happen in our Lord's prophecy. We find here that instead of moving directly from week 69 into week 70, 
Instead, there's a major time gap between the two. Okay? So year, uh, weeks 1 through 69, they all happen in sequence, one directly after the other. But now, a gap is opened up before the start of week 70. And God reveals a lot of events that happen in this time gap. Let's look at it together now, beginning in verse 26. It says, and after the 62 weeks, remember, verse 25, we had seven weeks plus 62 weeks. So that's 69. This is the after the end of the 69th week. After those 69 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, this is an unexpected twist. For 69 weeks, God is setting Israel up to receive its Messiah. And now Messiah is here. He publicly announces himself. We would expect immediately, week 70, Messiah takes his throne, kingdom of God established on the earth, they all live happily ever after. No. 69 weeks end, and then the Messiah, Jesus, gets killed. That's what it means when it says he's cut off. This is the first major event to happen after those first 69 weeks. The first event of the time gap. Messiah is killed. And it says he is killed and he shall have nothing. That means no kingdom. Cut off with nothing. The King James Version offers an interesting translation here. It says he shall be cut off but not for himself. Which, which speaks to the fact that his death would be a substitutionary death. He would die in place of others. And friends, both of these truths are correct, that he both died without seeing his kingdom inaugurated on the earth, and he died not for his, himself, but he died for all of us. The crucifixion of Jesus is one of the greatest tragedies in world history. In fact, the greatest, because we had a man who was without sin suffer torture and death as if he were a common criminal. The Son of God rejected by his own creation. The Messiah of Israel rejected by his people. Greatest of all tragedies. And yet, friends, the scriptures also teach us that this event was part of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And in fact, it had to happen for all of God's plans for this world to be fulfilled. Because you see, the death of Jesus wasn't just for himself. He did offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin. You see, when Jesus was sent to that cross... He did something very special there. He voluntarily took upon his shoulders the full weight of all of the guilt of our sins. He accepted those on his shoulders and offered to bear the full weight of divine judgment against our sins himself. Jesus could do that. He's the only one in human history who could do that because he was son of God and son of man. He could offer an atonement of infinite value, and he could be a substitute, a man for other men. 
That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That event, though outside of the 69 weeks, would be part of God's plan for Israel's future glory. Do you remember back in verse 24, some of those opening plans God had for Israel? They were to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for their iniquity. The only way those could be accomplished is if he sent his son into the world and his son died accepting God's judgment for our sin on his shoulders, allowing his son to experience hell so that we could have a kingdom and glory. So it was a tragedy, but a necessary event, and it happens in the gap between weeks 69 and 70. Well, then we continue reading. It says, after that event, then the people, I'm middle of verse 26 here, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Israel was going to reject its Messiah, have Christ crucified, and though it was part of God's plan, they were also morally responsible for this evil decision. And so this prophecy says, subsequent to their killing of their own Messiah, God would again judge Israel. He was going to send in a new army. They were going to wipe out the holy city, take away the holy temple, scatter them off to the four winds, Again, and friends, once more from our vantage point in history, we can see that this prophecy was fulfilled. For in A.D. 70, the Roman Empire did exactly that. Just a couple of decades after the crucifixion of Jesus, the nation of Israel once more ceased to be on the map. Verse 26 says, The nation would come to an end with a flood. That's not a flood of water. That's a flood of foreign armies running through their land, destroying everything in their wake. And then it moves on to the future, still our future. It says, and to the end, the end of this era of history, all of it, including the end of the time we're living in, to the end there shall be war and desolations, that is sacrileges, shall be decreed. So all of this, all of this schedule for the time gap between weeks 69 and 70 in God's dealings with the nation of Israel, that revealed Messiah would be cut off. He would die before his kingdom came. But then the nation that killed him would be judged. They would be scattered. And from that point all the way to the end, the world, including the Israelites, they would experience wars, desolations, But now we come to verse 27. And it says, And he, now we're looking at the very end of God's prophetic plans, and he shall make a covenant with many for one week. Who is this he? He shall make a covenant. Well, it's the he that was mentioned in verse 26. The prince who is to come. The Romans who destroyed Israel in A.D. 70, they're called the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is a future world leader. He's not yet risen on the world stage, but he will one day. He is of the old Roman Empire. He will come from the same place where that empire was. This coming prince is going to rise at the very end. 
He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That means an international accord involving Israel, but many other nations as well. And you will note here that he will make this strong covenant for one week. There is our 70th week of prophecy. Week 69 ended at the triumphal entry. Long time gap, a whole lot of events transpire. When do we start week 70 and finally get to the last seven years before God's glory for Israel? Week 70 commences when the prince who is to come signs that covenant. It inaugurates a seven-year cycle, the final seven-year cycle. First half of those seven years go pretty well for Israel. They're back in their promised land, built another temple. They're enjoying liberty. It's a good life. But the second half of that week, about three and a half years, is the worst that Israel has ever seen. Look what it says. It says, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. So he signs a seven-year contract, a multinational accord. It's good for the Holy Land for about half the time. The other half... Their worship gets disrupted. They're subjected to persecution. There are abominations. There are desolations. It's as bad as Israel's ever seen it. And so we learn here that this figure, this this prince who is to come, this one who's supposed to be a great ally of Israel in the future, actually he will be antichrist. He will be antichrist the man we've learned about already from the book of Daniel. In that final week of God's plan, that 70th week, that will be Israel's great tribulation. And friends, God will use that great tribulation to turn the Israelites back to himself, fulfilling the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 11, which we read earlier in the service, that in the end, all Israel shall be saved. They shall experience calamities the likes of which they've never seen, and it will endure for months and then for years, and in their misery they shall again cry out to God, just like they did at the start when they were slaves in Egypt. They're going to be crying out to God in repentance and faith, begging God to intervene, and part of that prayer will be receiving Jesus as their Messiah. In week 69... Right after that week, they had killed him because they rejected him. Now they receive him wholeheartedly, and he comes back. And that's when week 70 ends, and that's when glory commences. All Israel shall be saved. We see this is how week 70 ends. Look at the final words of verse 27. It says that all of these abominations will come on the one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So week 70 terminates with the killing of Antichrist. The passages come full circle, you'll notice. Verse 24, opening words, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. 
Final words of verse 27. The decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God has a decree for his people, and he will execute that decree start to finish. It will all be done by him. Scriptures tell us that the second coming of Christ is the event which will destroy Antichrist and inaugurate Israel's glorious kingdom. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It expounds upon this. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for, quote, the day will not come. There, The day is a reference to the coming kingdom of God. That day, when it comes, it will not unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. There's Antichrist. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Then it goes on to say, But the Lord will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Week 70 will end when the Lord Jesus comes down from the clouds of heaven, speaks a word, and destroys Antichrist, all that supported him, all that he represents, and takes his throne, David's throne, his forefather, and begins that kingdom. So you see, week 70 will be crucial to God's prophetic plans. I realize I'm out of time. I do appreciate your patience. Can I simply wrap this up with a couple more thoughts? Let me end with a question. Why the lengthy time gap between the 69th and 70th weeks? Why not just run them all in sequence? There's a very good reason for the time gap. And it's because that gap opened up room for us. That gap between weeks 69 and 70 is where God established the New Testament church. And it's where God gave the Great Commission which declared that the message of Christ should go to all the nations of the world. It's what Luke 21, verse 24 calls, quote, the times of the Gentiles, and what uh, Romans chapter 11 declared to be the times of the Gentiles. You see, from weeks 1 to 69, God kept his focus on Israel so that Christ could come into the world and make atonement for human sin. Once that atonement was accomplished and Israel rejected her Messiah, God could then turn his attention to all of the Gentile nations. That's all nations that are not Jewish. During that time, he established the church, gave the Great Commission so that his coming kingdom might be filled not just with Israelites, but with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. My friends, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in and the kingdom of God will be packed to capacity with not just Israelites, but also people of every nation, then our Lord will begin week 70. Then he will finish and establish the kingdom of God on earth, and it will include all of us. That's why we have the gap between the final weeks. My friends, as we bring this passage to a close now, can I suggest a couple of applications? First of all, as we consider today's text, let us marvel at the sovereignty of God displayed in this passage. Here we see that God has a plan for all of human history, summarized in a decree which he has issued, and God has all the power and wisdom he needs to bring that decree to pass. 
a decree that involves the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of kings, even so-called little people like Mary and Joseph and Zechariah, nobodies in the world's eyes that God would use to bring Messiah into the world. Friends, seeing that God is able to accomplish His purposes, let us worship Him as our sovereign one. Secondly, let us also thank God for the time gap between week 69 and 70. Without that gap, we would not be here. It's that gap in weeks which allowed God to get the gospel across the world to North America to us. Listen, we're far removed from Israel. We are a long time removed from the life of Jesus, and yet we have received him as our Messiah That's because of the time gap, because of the great commission, the New Testament church that was given. God could have left us in our sins, but he chose to bring us the saving message of Christ so that we too could have a part in his coming kingdom. Friend, if you're here today and you've not yet received Christ in repentance and faith, understand that God is offering the gospel to you. He has paused his program with his chosen people and he has brought the gospel across the world and across 2,000 years of time. He has established local churches in every city and village in this world practically so that messengers could tell you about Jesus, that you might bow before him as your Lord and Messiah. Don't miss this opportunity. Receive Jesus. Repent. Turn to him in faith, accept him as your king, and then take your place as a citizen of his coming kingdom. Number three, this passage should give us great assurance about the promises of God. Much of what we've read today is is in our past. Daniel's future, but our past, we can see that God kept his word precisely as he said he would. This should give us great confidence as we look at unfulfilled prophecy. God will keep those promises too. He will not fail. And then finally, I think for we who believe in God, this text reminds us to show patience as God works out his plans. God had a glorious future for Israel, but it wasn't going to happen instantaneously. It was going to happen over a long, long, now we know, thousands of years of history. Patience is a hard thing to learn. That's why Dave Palmer always tells me, never pray to God for patience. He might just answer that prayer. (laughs) It's hard to be patient. Sometimes I get frustrated waiting 10 minutes in a fast food line. But this passage says God fulfills his word, but not on your time scale. For him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That means God does not live within time. He lives outside of time. His perspective on it is quite different. So don't treat a delay in the fulfillment of God's promises as God's God's loss of interest in what he has promised. Don't take it as a character failure on God's part. No, he will fulfill everything that he has said. Remember, he is greater than we are. His plans are greater than ours. Let us be patient as we wait for him. And now let us close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the time you've given. Thank you for the kind patience of these people as we have slowly worked through today's text. Lord, would you work the message of this text into our hearts? Might it shape us and change us? Might it give us greater assurance and hope and faith? Might you use today's text to turn some uh, to you in faith for the first time, beginning their journey with you, seeing the, the rare and precious time that they are living in and knowing the certainty 
of the end. Lord, we commit all of this to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.